Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I'm bringing in the New Year's first episode with my wife, Nicole Bitter. So it hasn't been that long since Nicole's been on the show. She was on a few episodes back, actually, after she completed the incredibly competitive uh, Javelina 100 mile where she took third place. And it was such an interesting event to follow this year, partly because I feel like it marks a a growth spurt perhaps in the sport of ultra marathon running where, you know, since I've been doing the sport and for the longest time, I think, well, before I ever, ever knew what an ultra marathon was, the Western States 100 has been the most competitive hundred miler in the United States. And it, really isn't even that close. Uh, There's been some other competitive 100 milers, no doubt about it. But this year, Javelina had a huge growth spurt, in my opinion, in that the women's field was just really deep. And in my opinion, it was probably the second most competitive 100 mile race on the women's side uh, behind Western states and really did kind of close that gap that we normally see between Western states and other 100 milers around the country. So it was just such a fun race to be a part of. Nicole's race particularly was interesting because she started out the day in 10th place and worked her way all the way up to third, uh, which was awesome. But for those of you who are in the know, the Javelina 100 is a golden ticket race, meaning the top two finishers on the men's and women's side of that race get automatic entries into the Western States 100. So these golden ticket races are oftentimes targeted by the fast folks in the sport in order to kind of get themselves into that race. Cause it's a tough race to get into. If you go in through the lottery, I believe right now it's like between one to 2% chance of getting in. If you're a first year lottery entrant. So if you can find yourself getting in through a race a little bit quicker, you don't have to wait quite as long. And that makes it these golden ticket races, very high priority. I think for a lot of the people, a lot of people's calendars, So getting, being the first one out is a tough pill to swallow. You know, Nicole wasn't shy about sharing that, although she's done Western States many times and uh, was going to do Javelina regardless. It is tough to think like, man, if I would have been one spot up further, I would have got that spot. So Nicole circled the wagons and nine weeks later, she lined up at the Bandera 100 kilometer, which is the next golden ticket series race or race in the series. And just put together a great performance. Similar to Javelina, she just moved up all day long and then found herself, you know, finishing second and getting that spot. So now she's in a situation where in early January, starting the year, she's got a spot at Western States, which happens at the end of June. Plenty of time to put in some strategic training specifically for that race, as well as some tune-up races, which is a really interesting, fun spot to be as an ultra marathon runner. Uh, I'm excited to to be part of that journey and the journey that she just had now. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm having her back on the show so soon outside of just the race itself was just to see like what it was like or talk about what it was like going between Javelina and then what do you do in that time between? Because she also had some interesting dynamics happen in there. She was gonna race the ultra trail cape town race in south africa too and i won't get into too many details here because she does talk about it in the episode but um a lot of things happen that are maybe like not great in terms of making sure you're ready to get back on a race course and have a race like she did 
uh, this past weekend. So I wanted to hear about that. But since she's been on the episode before, I wanted to make sure we were doing some new stuff. So those of you who are frequent listeners don't feel like we're just redoing the same things we've done with her on the past. I really wanted to dive in with Nicole about just the mental side of the sport. I think people in the sport and even people following the sport or just casually aware of the sport realize running distances of 100 kilometers or 100 miles or any of these ultra marathons is a huge mental undertaking. And, you know, it's obviously a huge physical undertaking as well. But I think a lot of ultra runners pride themselves in being mentally tough. And that being one of the reasons why they find themselves at a finish line at the end of the events they do. With that said, I don't think there's nearly as much content or dialogue around the preparation of the mental side of the sport, the way there is some of the physical training stuff. And and it makes sense. I think when you think about just like a training plan or a training block and just how that all plays out, it's really interesting to see what some of these runners are doing to prepare themselves. But what things do go into having that really, really laser focus for hours and hours on end to the point where when your body's feeling really rough, you can keep moving at a decent clip. Nicole's a consistent runner. She's got a very busy life very mentally demanding lifestyle. I wanted to maybe dive in a little bit on that and find out from her what she thinks about just lifestyle and the way you structure things like that in terms of potentially feeding into building up the tolerance to handle these type of races the way that she has historically. So we get into that. We get into her transition between Havelina to Bandera, how that all went. Um, some of the stuff that she does in training that's different now. The other interesting thing about Nicole, she turned 40 last this year, last year. I guess it's January already. So uh, she turned 40 last year. So she's been running since she was 10 years old. She was competitive in middle school, competitive in high school. She raced for division one cross country team and then found herself in ultra marathons around a decade ago. So I want to hear a little bit more about like, what is she doing differently now that's keeping her in the sport? that maybe she realizes she has to do differently because you just can't do the same things at age 40 as you could when you're in your twenties. And she shares some of that both in the grand scheme of things, as well as with her particular space between Havelina and Bandera. Also, before we welcome Nicole on the show, I do want to talk just a little bit about pacing and crewing in general, because I think it's such an interesting part of the sport. And you know, Nicole has given me so many opportunities to be able to really practice this uh, and with someone I know really well. So it it's it's a fun skill, I think, to develop. And between when I met Nicole and this last race, I crewed and paced her at some, some really exciting events, including the first one I ever did with her was a Black Canyon 100K. I've paced and crewed her at Western States a couple of times, at Javelina a couple of times, at Bandera this weekend, and a few others there as well. And it's just so cool to be able to kind of figure out what is it that this runner needs versus what I think I want them to know and everything that kind of goes into that. That can be stuff as simple as like knowing when you should be running close to them and talking to them and engaging with them versus uh, you know, for Nicole specifically, there are times where I'll even step back a little bit and just give her some breathing room and let her know that she can kind of just put her head down and focus for a while. There's very competitive races like Bandera, where I'm also trying to gather Intel where, whether that be sticking around in an aid station a little bit longer 
and chatting with the, the, the volunteers there to find out where everyone is in the field or getting to certain points of the course where you can just get a much bigger visual look of where someone is behind or ahead of you, like sticking back a little bit there and getting some of that intel so that if your runner is going to thrive off of that sort of stuff, uh, you have that access to information. Every runner is different though. Some people do not want to know that stuff. And certain times it's even different depending on where it is in the race. Uh, sometimes uh, runners will want to know at a certain point where they're at in the field, and then they can start maybe making their move. Other times runners are trying to avoid that information early on because these, these events do sometimes get out quite fast, sometimes too fast in my opinion. And if you get hung up in that and worried about what position you are early on, you can end up costing yourself time at the end by getting a little too in the know, so to speak. So it's really fun to be able to pace and cruise someone multiple times and really get to know their personality and all the ins and outs of all of that. So I'm very honored to be able to have those experiences with Nicole at some really fun events and looking forward to continuing to improve that craft and continue to you know work with Nicole in these type of races when she wants to do them. All right. I'll stop talking about Nicole for now and let her share what she has to think about this stuff in the episode. But before we do get rolling, just a quick few announcements. Show landing page is at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. On that landing page, you can find all sorts of different things, the full catalog of previous episodes with details. So if you are not a frequent listener and want to look at some of the other topics on the show and maybe pick a couple that are most interesting to you, it's a great spot to check that out. Also on that page, you can find show support options, including the show Patreon page. If you're interested in getting ad-free, intro-free, early release audio episodes, that is a great way to support the show and cut right to the chase and get right into the episodes. Also on that page is other support options for the episode if you're not a fan of Patreon. If you want to support the show, but you want to do it non-monetarily, there are some great options. If you find an episode that you really enjoy, or you just enjoy the show as a whole, if you want to share it with your friends and family and on your social media channels, it goes a long way helping me grow the show. One thing I'm aiming to do for 2023 is increase the number of episodes that I produce over the course of the year. And one way I think I'm going to do that is I'm going to start having episodes that are a little more focused on specific things so that folks who are interested in the show the last couple of years will still get that same amount of content that I have been putting out through it, but will also have some extra stuff. So what that might look like is I might have episodes that are more kind of geared towards fitness and nutrition as general in general. I'll have episodes that are specific towards listener questions and topics that they want me to touch on. I'll have, I think, a lot more ultra marathon runners on this podcast this year to add to just the interest or the angle of training and stuff that I do. So we get a little more dialogue from other ultra runners other than myself and the ones that do come on the show historically. So uh, I'm excited to do it. Hopefully it will be something that everyone who is listening to the show also wants to wants to check out. All right. Finally, last thing. If you are looking for some coaching, I have a wide variety of options for you if you want to work with me. I've got things as simple as pre-made plans that follow my philosophy, all the way up to working with me one-on-one on a tiered-based contact option. If uh, you're a beginner, 
or advanced, I've got options. If you're doing a shorter endurance event, like a five kilometer or something really long, like an ultra marathon, I've got a bunch of options for those as well. So if you're interested in accessing any of that, you can head over to my website at zachbitter.com and click over to the coaching page for all the details and options for that. I'm here with, of course, my all-time favorite guest, Nicole Bitter. <laughs> I, it's, it's an honor. I'm glad I'm the favorite guest. Is, well, you're back relatively soon, actually. You were on not that long ago after the Havelina 100 mile because you had an incredible performance. And then, um, but, you know, just missed out on what in this sport is the ever elusive golden ticket, which gets you into the Western States 100, which is uh, what probably the second most competitive 100 miler in the world right now behind Ultra Trail Mont Blanc. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. So you had not that long a time, I guess, to really kind of absorb that race and everything that went into it. And I believe it was about nine weeks later, which would have been yesterday, toe the line at the Bandera 100K, just two and a half hours from where we're living here in Austin. What what happened, I guess? <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, just to kind of take a step back, I think with Havelino, we were both really proud of the, the run. You helped me so much with that, but, um, we, we got third at the Havelina. So then it was an opportunity that I had to jump into UTCT in South Africa. And it was about five weeks in a turnaround. So we knew it was going to be tight, but it was just a bucket list race that I'd always wanted to run. So, um, the plan was to go out there and do the race. Um, unfortunately, on a shakeout run, the first day I was there, I had very good company with Hillary Allen, but I sprained my ankle. Um, and so I definitely was out of competing at UTCT. So it was one of those interesting um dilemmas where potentially fate played somewhat of a role because then. I ironically was able to bounce back very quickly from my injury and the just the ankle sprain at you um, that I experienced in South Africa, and decided why not jump in Bandera and give it another shot. I run Bandera a couple of times over the years, so I'm familiar with the course and figured um, obviously it's a less traditional buildup than I would have liked, but I still felt pretty fit from. Um, Havelina, so decided to jump in and give it my best shot. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting to me because we knew you were doing Ultra Trail Cape Town that was on the calendar. And like you said, it was a race you were just really excited to go to. You hadn't been to South Africa before. You wanted to do the safari. I did. <laughs> and obviously you wanted to do the race as well. And then when I was thinking about it, because I mean, going into Havelina, uh, I mean, obviously like Havelina was as we talked about in the previous episode, that was the most stacked women's field that that race has seen to date by a long shot. And it was getting to the point where it was looking to be quite competitive. Like to what I would say is like in terms of hundred mile races in the United States, that was the closest competition wise, I think from the women's field to Western States. So it was like a pretty big kind of closing, somewhat closing of that gap that we typically see between most hundred milers in Western States these days. And that just makes it so much harder when you're racing in a field that deep. So when you were like, okay, I'm going to do ultra shell Cape town as well. I mean, the hope is you get the golden ticket at Havelina. So you don't have to try to turn that around and then race what would have been what five weeks after you 
Ultra Trail Cape Town. And then, you know, racing what, what we didn't know at the time, but would ultimately be a very competitive field at Bandera. It's just, there's no way around it with golden ticket races these days that there's going to be some deep fields and you're going to have to perform or someone else is. So it was like, when, when I got the phone call from you, at, when you were in South Africa and you told me that your ankle was, you rolled your ankle. First of all, it was like, I think my comment was like the, the last thing I thought I was going to hear from you is that you rolled your ankle. Cause your ankles are like your strong suit. Like you're, you're so, I mean, the reason you like these Texas trails, these Rocky Texas trails and the descents on them is because you can just like kind of plow right through them without really worrying about that sort of thing for the most part. So, um, I mean, I could have thought of a hundred other things I would have heard from you about why you weren't going to be able to do that race before an ankle issue. Yeah. It was very interesting, not expected for sure. And it was, I mean, it looked pretty bad. I remember because when you called me, because you, it was like, you were still like four or five days out from the race. He's like, I rolled my ankle on a training run. It doesn't really hurt when I'm walking, but it looks pretty bad. What should I do? And I'm like, well, I mean, let's just give it a couple of days. Cause if you just give your ankle a good torque, you know, sometimes it just takes a couple of days for it to kind of settle down and then you're fine. And then you, you sent me a picture and if folks want to see, go to Nicole's Instagram page. It was at NK bitter. Um, and just take a look at it. It was like, was not looking good. When I saw the picture, I was like, yeah, you, you're probably not going to run that race. And you were fortunate enough that the RDs were so kind out at that, at, at the race, they, they, they had a, a doctor who was willing to look at it too, and can confirm that it was a terrible idea for you to go back out on a course like that, which is, you know, a whole other level of technicality compared to what we typically see, um, in, in a lot of these races here in the United States that, yeah, it would have just been a, a really bad decision, I think, to try to force through that. But um, I'm rambling a little bit here, but as your coach, I'm thinking about your training for the last year. You're thinking, oh my gosh, this ankle issue, you know, I had to take a little time off after Javelina to recover, basically tapered into Ultra Trail Cape Town. Now am I gonna be able to do any meaningful training going into Bandera? In your mind, you're thinking this is like essentially nine weeks of no training or very low training. What was your thought process through all of that as you were kind of processing everything that happened? First of all, Alta Trail Cape Town, this time between that and confirming that, first of all, you'd be able to do Bandera because there was some time there where like we had to make sure your ankle was going to be good. I mean, it, those things can take, as I found out, months if sometimes to take care of yeah. themselves. I guess everything just worked out the way it was supposed to, right? Um, I had kind of this stage, I guess I've been um, running ultras for about 10 years and I just decided to trust my fitness and trust what you were telling me. So um, thanks for being a good coach there. But I think we just decided, what do I have to lose, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we knew I was fit going into Javelina um, and I was able to do about four weeks of decent training, um, after my ankle sprain and, you know, some of that was tapering again, but just, I just did a very small taper and, um, got in a couple of good workouts that boosted my confidence a bit. And, um, then, you know, just figured why not give it a shot at this point, I feel like, um, why not take the chance on things? It's I, I kind of, um, have gotten over the older I get, the more I'm just willing to try out things. Even if I'm going to fail, I'm just, I, you know, to me, it's more just kind of like icing on the cake. Why not just give myself the opportunity? If, if I don't succeed, 
I'll just jump into the next one, right? There's, it's kind of like getting over your pride and just saying it's worth a shot. Yeah, you've gotten good at that. I I, I want to talk about that topic specifically as we get going here too, but I, I don't want to miss just this opportunity to kind of like share the big picture of what it is to actually prepare for these races that I think sometimes, I don't know that it gets missed so much, but it's just so much more fun, I think, as like a spectator or, you know, a fan or even a participant or coach of the sport to really dig into like, oh, what did that athlete do for the last, like, say 12, maybe even 16 weeks leading to the race? Where was that big build that is like that epic preparation that is going to really fine tune the skills for a specific course? And I mean, we have a sport with so much variety that there is that component of course specificity and just really being prepared for both the distance, the intensity, the weather, the profile of the course and everything like that. But really at the end of the day, you you have to look at the full body of work. And for you, you know, at age 40 now, being in the sport for as long as you have, having a running background before that at, you know, collegiate running, high school running at a high level, like I mean, it's just, there's a lot of miles in your legs that, you know, when we're talking about events that are going to be relatively low intensity, that stuff does pay off. So if we don't want to go too far back into your past in terms of like your, your training volume, but even we just look at the last year, you know, as your coach, um, it's always interesting to look at this from the coach's lens versus the the athlete's lens or the, the individual's lens, because I mean, I, I see this with myself, even like I'm thinking about my own training in racing and I can easily start fixating on really, really minute things or like single workouts or even just like a, a one block of training when in reality, you know, you got to zoom out and consider it all. And, you know, we lived in Austin now for about a year and one thing that you did almost immediately when you came here is you started training with a group, uh, rogue, rogue, uh, running. And I mean, the amount of like just structured quality work that you kind of just built into your schedule that you had done consistently through Javelina when, when you finished Javelina and then sort of was forced to maybe take a little bit more time off of running due to the ankle issue and then just recovering in general, I was thinking, man, this might be the perfect scenario where you had such good training the last 10 months that a little bit of a break isn't going to compromise your fitness that much because you can maintain a lot of that with minimal dosage at the point from based on the training load you took on that 10 months. I was like, we might have a perfect situation here where you're both fresh and still fit, which is like the the holy grail for endurance athletes is fresh and fit at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I think conveniently... Um it worked out to our favor, right? It's always risky. You just never know how things are going to play out, but I think you were spot on there. I also think something that I've done over the last year that is perhaps a bit interesting for me is I think my mileage has definitely been down. So I'm one of those odd people that doesn't wear a watch. I don't track my mileage. So that's not exactly ideal when you're kind of thinking about your year in training, right? I I wish I had the data because I think I'd have a lot of lifetime miles at this mm -hmm. point that I would have tracked because I've been running 30 years at a pretty high mileage um, for most of those years. But that being said, I definitely think that I've incorporated more cross training into um, my weekly volume and perhaps also just minimize the, the um, weekend long runs. I don't think I do quite as much as I used to in the past. And 
you know, for me, it's really worked well. Um, I still get the time on feet, but, but maybe I'm on the elliptical or maybe I'm rollerblading. And I just think um, for me, it just kind of keeps it exciting and interesting. And also to your point, um, meeting with the rogue um, team on the road and the trail is helpful to me just to have the company and the socialization and training partner. So that's been really fun because um, I definitely enjoyed training with you in Phoenix, but I think you're probably the faster family member. So, um, you know, sometimes it's nice to train with people that are a little closer to your own pace because it just, um, you know, it's, it's probably just allows me to recover a little bit better. So we also probably have to mention, we got a young dog, uh, Minnie, and she's been quite the new little running partner. So she really lives to run every week. So getting the chance to run with her has brought a lot of joy for me. So um, when I'm not training with the road team, usually running with you or Minnie or both. So I always have um, training partners available, which is really nice. Yeah, I think you, you're you're just a great example of just both what are some kind of core principles that you really can't get around in any meaningful or in most cases, I should say, that are going to kind of move you forward, assuming you can stay healthy and recover from them, but also adapting to your individual needs. You know, it, it's it's probably like a little maybe I wouldn't say threatening, but almost like unnerving to some people as they kind of approach a time in their running career where you're at, where it's like, you know, when in your mid twenties, you can go out and hit the volumes that you hit now purely through running and just kind of bounce back pretty quickly. And, you know, you, one thing I've seen you even shift over since, since I've met you was uh, you, you don't really do a lot more. You don't do a lot of running uh, two a day running anymore. You used to be pretty consistent where you do your core workout in the morning You can go out for like a 30, 40 minute run in the afternoon, pretty low, low intensity, um, you know, sometimes with the dogs, just a kind of out there to just some time on feet more or less. And, and I think that worked well for you, but yeah, as you've got, you've gotten into like the sport a little further and just recognize like what your body needs, you've certainly maintained the training load from a volume standpoint. And, and you probably might've even increased the intensity standpoint to some degree, but you're doing, you're right. You're doing less running. Like, so you say, I don't really do as many long runs anymore, but you do a Saturday, like you know, a decently long run of like around 20 miles. And then you get on the elliptical for hour and then go rollerblading for hour. I mean, you, you basically are doing a long stimulus that day. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, I have to admit like on the weekends, given my job, it's just easier to fit in the time yeah. to do that. And I sit so much during the week at my computer. I mean, I think most of us can relate to that. It just feels nice on the weekends to be able to move, even if it's at kind of a lower intensity than running, but I have a secret passion for rollerblading, uh, probably embarrassingly so. So I love to kind of get out there and just um, do my rollerblading. Um, so little things like that, I think it's still that stimulus of time on feet, which I think pays off, especially on those long um, ultra runs, like the 100K or the 100 mile. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's an interesting piece. I mean, for embarrassing or otherwise, it produced a golden ticket. So <laughs> you, you you should you should take that rollerblading with with pride. As far as I'm concerned, uh, the thing I find interesting though is just your I think your attitude towards it is an interesting thing to me because when we look at just producing your best results in endurance sport, there's like this relatively subjective thing 
that is hard to really pin down and it's motivation. Like how motivated are you to actually do what you're trying to do? Because I mean, you know, you're fresh off of it. Like what you were, you know, we're 16 hours removed from you finishing the Bandera hundred K and you know, you find yourself 80, 85 kilometers into a race like that. It is not fun to be out there. <laughs> like It's hard. So you have to be so motivated and you to, to be able to kind of keep pushing. So like you can hurt, it can be tough, but if you're motivated, you can usually push through that. So what is the path forward to getting you motivated to be able to do that when you know, you have to keep moving uh, and then that sort of thing. And I think like for you, it's like going out and doing four hour long run on a Saturday isn't going to be what keeps you motivated, but, you know, maybe going out for a two hour run, then getting on the elliptical, then going rollerblading and kind of breaking it up in stages like that really seems to work for you and keep you motivated. And then when you yeah. get to the race itself, you're not like kind of beaten down by the, the long runs on the weekend, the way you maybe would be if you had done those instead. I would agree. I mean, I think, you know, when we think about life, it's very akin to ultra running. It kind of comes in seasons, right? So you have different seasons as to what works for you. And I think you just need to be honest with yourself and play around and figure out what makes you motivated, right? What's going to help you at the end of a race to feel like you're coming in fresh and mentally tough. So for me, I think at this point, less of the long runs, the beatdowns, I, I just don't enjoy it quite as much as I used to. Um, so I think I stick more to, um, you know, building and cross training. And, and that's not to say that I don't have in a buildup, typically some weekends that are filled with like back-to-back -back long runs, because it would be a lie to say I don't. I mean, I think building up to Havelina, you and I went out and did like a 36 or seven mile run on a Saturday. And then, you know, maybe like a, a 15 mile the next day as a buildup. And, you know, I've done more in the past if I've needed to, but I, there's always weekends in, in preparing for a big race. So you have to do those long runs, but I would just say, I've cut that out for an every weekend type scenario, which has made me happier. I think. Yeah. You, you can definitely still do some like spot checks and things like that with the long run. And I mean, to some degree too, it's like, if you race frequently, like, you know, I see this, this, there is like an, I think an ongoing and, and very productive conversation about like what, what is too much versus enough when it comes to long run and that side of the sport. And it, you know, it's, it, it is the cornerstone workout for an ultra marathon because it's the intensity at which you're going to be participating in. It tends to be the thing you, you peak for when you're heading into a race. So it's an important piece of that puzzle. Um, but I do think we're seeing more and more like less of the kind of the heroic long runs that we maybe saw when we first got in the sport. It's like, wow, so-and-so did this eight hour long run out in the mountains. And it's like, that must be the ticket or, you know, something like that, where now I remember like one of the storylines after also Trail Mont Blanc this year was Killian's training strategy going in. And, you know, he didn't run much past, I think three or four hours, uh, at a time on any of his long sessions, but he was very consistent with them, uh, and his training in general and just the cumulative training load over the course of the, the year, put him in a great spot. I mean, it's also Killian. So <laughs> you also have to have uh, like yourself, there's like a huge body of running and fitness behind him that, allows him probably to do things maybe a little bit differently than, than say someone who hasn't had that long-term consistency that folks like you have. 
Well, and I mean, I would put him in a different category simply because he's exceptional, right? I mean, I think people like him and Courtney fall in a different camp and I cannot um, even contemplate being in the same realm of them from a talent perspective. But yes, I agree. I mean, I think having that base allows you to play a lot, uh, play around with more alternatives, right? And so since you and I have been running for so long, I think we have more flexibility to kind of um, rely on our base to be the foundation for just our general training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's, it makes a lot of sense and it'll be exciting to see kind of how that carries into this, this year, start off 2023 strong with a second place finish at the Bandera hundred kilometer, which was the first golden ticket race of 2023 leading into this year's Western States 100. Let's talk a little bit about that in general. Um, an interesting dynamic, like you mentioned, Courtney DeWalter is, you know, we're, we're big Courtney DeWalter fans here. We joke around if we had a daughter, she'd have a Courtney DeWalter poster on the wall. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, when she enters a race, it's um, almost mind boggling in the sense that like most people are going to, if they're honest with themselves right now, think, okay, Courtney's probably going to win this thing. And in a golden ticket situation, you're looking at a scenario like, well, now there's one available. So you go from two available to one available. What was, when, when Courtney decided to do Bandera, I think you had already decided to do it. So what was your thought process when, when all of that happened? Yeah, I think I knew that she was already in. And so I wasn't even signed up for the race yet. So, but I mean, when I signed up, I just assumed that one of the golden tickets was going to Courtney. So, um, but you know, I think, What was interesting is I have had the opportunity to do Western a number of times. So while I was, um, you know, excited to try and go for a golden ticket, I kind of have changed my mindset a little bit than in the past where I don't think, I think just putting up good results at the golden ticket races is also equally important to me, right? So I was really proud of getting the third place at Javelina. So you know, to come back and have a good showing at Bandera, I think was kind of equally important to me just to show to myself that um, I'm still running strong, which, you know, for me is a big deal. So, um, you know, I think the golden ticket's always there, but in the sport now being so competitive, it's almost like you have, for me, I just always kind of know in the back of my mind um, it just has to be a great day. You're right? one mistake away from yeah. it not happening. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's easy to, I'm not Courtney DeWalter. So um, it's one of those things that if it happens, wonderful, even if it doesn't, and I put up a good showing, then excellent. It's just running such a hard sport. People have great days, right? And so it's hard to be consistent and have those great days all the time. Um, it's also it's also so, um, I really find that it's so cyclical, right? You, you've you been through this over the last couple of years where you just have an unfortunate injury or you're just kind of more in like a winter phase and then you get it together. You, um, you know, a year later, you're, you're running your best ever. Um, I, I think we always talk about you had a great year in 2019 and it just was all firing on all cylinders. So I think we, if you're in the sport long enough, you just go through those cycles where 
you just have to be patient, right? It's such a, it's such a long game um, for running and you, you can't give up on yourself. Like the people that are in ultra running for the long run are the people that are super patient and know there's going to be big highs and big lows and just everything um, in between. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like, all of a sudden now I feel like I kind of hit my stride again, but it had been a couple of years where I wasn't feeling like, you know, I'd have some good races, some, you know, lesser races. So it's all, um, it's all about just being patient and nailing as many as you can. Yeah. I think I, you can even probably like scope out on that to some degree as well, where, you know, there's like, everyone here is human. So it's like, there's, there's this person on the race course that you see on the results or on the live stream and things like that. But then there's everything that happens around it too, where, you know, like, you know, you take you, for example, you know, we, you were living, you lived in Dallas for 10 years. Then when we got married, you moved to Phoenix, we're there for four years. And then a year ago, we moved to Austin. And like, there's transitions there that are, you know, they have their positives, but they also have their adjustment periods as well. So, when you're trying to look at it through just the whole lens of like what's happening in life that impacts race day, it impacts training, it impacts a lot of things. And it's hard to tease that out in the data in terms of like, well, what resulted to what? I mean, I think us moving to Austin was a huge, like kind of step in the right direction for your training and just what makes you kind of feel comfortable about going through what is a very busy busy day and week and month and year. And for the most part, you, 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 there's a lot of puzzle pieces there and it's like finding the way to make them all match is about as important as any of the training and racing, I think. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can attest that in 2021, I just had a really stressful year at work, given some of the implications with what the government was doing from a legal perspective. And I just, um, you know, I did everything in my power that I thought I could I could do to be ready for Western States to give it my all. And I got out there and I, I don't know, my body shut down very early in the race and, you know, it could have been physical, who knows, but I also think that mess mental stress, I just wasn't able to um, handle it at that point. So, you know, I think being able to just know that there's going to be, again, the seasons, right? You're going to have moments where life's stressful um, and running's not going to be the priority. Maybe you're having kids. Maybe you're in a job where there's just a high stress moment for your career that you need to consider, right? I, I think just knowing that families are always, you know, there's always stressful moments with families. So just knowing that Obviously, stress is going to play a big part in your ability to run well. And can you manage that stress? I mean, I think we will all try, but sometimes, you know, it just doesn't work out that way. So um, I I feel like just being patient and just knowing that um, the highs and the lows come with the sport. So you know, it's, it's just, it's one of the um, necessary evils with being an ultra runner or a runner in general. Well, it's an interesting topic, especially now, because there's just, as a sport grows, there's opportunities to live as a professional athlete. If someone has that kind of scenario play out and, you know, they make the right partnerships and things like that, where you can remove some of those stressors from life where in past you probably had to have in order just to make ends meet and to have a career, a career in place, like post competitives and that sort of thing. 
And I find it just really interesting where the, like, I guess the pros and cons of it. Cause it's like, yeah, it like, if we, if you removed the most stressful situations from your career, it probably makes training and racing easier. Like, like you said, in 2020 going to Western States, no doubt about it. Had you not had the work stress you had leading into that particular race that year, things would have likely gone better for you. But there's also, you know, your, your, your career is also something that's not a linear trajectory either. You've, you've, you've been very successful in what you do, but those come with peaks and valleys as well as you kind of work up. So what role does work play in terms of helping your racing in terms of like, cause I think you're of the mindset that having your career is a net benefit for your training and racing. Cause it gives you sort of an outlet or something other to focus on other than like you have a bad race, then it just consumes you. Cause there's nothing else. Yeah. Well, and I mean, admittedly, I don't know anything different, right? So I'm yeah. 40 years old. It's not like I'm going to start and say, I'm just going to run at this point full time. I mean, that's just not my reality. Um, but for me, I've just always liked the element of balance with racing. So racing has always kind of been second to my job. And for me, I just, I like that aspect because it just takes the pressure off of it. I feel like if running was my full-time job, I probably, it would probably just be too stressful for me. I don't think I would do a great job balancing it, or I wouldn't have done a great job balancing it 10 years ago. I mean, maybe now I would say I'm enlightened enough to have handled that type of situation, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I like having the balance. It makes me happy. Um, I feel like you do a much better job in balancing running with other things. But for me, I, I really need that. Um, I need the outlet and I, I do really enjoy my job. So there's the plus there. Um, but I think with running too, maybe I don't always get as much recovery as I would if, you know, I had the ability to just not be sitting at a desk all day, you know, and, um, being on back-to-back -back calls, but I like being busy. That's just who I am. That's kind of how I was raised. I don't really know anything different. So at this point, I figure that's kind of just ingrained in, in me. Yeah. I think there's some, there's something about that too, from the mental side of the sport, because we think of this as like a huge physical endeavor. And I know people are aware of the mental side of ultra running, but I'm not sure like the preparation gets, noticed as much as the physical preparation does. Like I was kind of saying earlier, the big training block, the, you know, the, the following the person on Strava is like, it's fun to watch. It's, it's probably a lot more precise as well in terms of being able to see like a progression or what works and what doesn't work for somebody. But the mental training is something that I think is just, we know it's there. We know it's important, but is there like a blueprint for that in order to like work your mind out to the point where you can close those gaps. Cause you know, you have a race like you did at Bandera, you're out there for 10 hours and you know, it, the way the sport's gone, 10 hours isn't very long for the sport anymore. It's like, you know, at Western States, it's going to take you significantly longer at Javelina took you longer. Like, so you have to be focused and confident and calm through a huge block of time, which is mental and sometimes I wonder if just the way that you've kind of structured your life, you have such a, like, like a, like such a firm, like long kind of like tedious mental day on, on the average that when it comes to just be out there running all day long, you're, you're so 
prepared for that because you're not kind of just racing and then kind of like just sitting around relaxing and letting being able to shut off body and mind you've kind of got that mind firing for you know 10 12 hours a day at fairly consistently and like you said earlier like the weekends give you a little bit of a break to to let go of that but it's very much needed based on your monday through friday so sometimes i think of like your training just as much mental and how things play out because you you are very consistent in the second half of races when you are running well yeah, no, I, I think there's probably something to that. I always think too, it's like the longer you've been in the sport, I'm impressed with the people that are able to keep doing this year after year after year, right? Like there's something to be said when you first enter the sport and it's your first couple hundred mile races and you can, you know, you have the desire and the energy to want to duke it out and fight. Um, I think I found that the longer I do this, those last um, 20 miles of races. Oh, it's, it's just harder, right? Because you've been there, done that. I mean, it's like, you've proven to yourself, you know, what's coming, you, you, you know, you can run a hundred miles, you know, you can do a hundred K like you've gotten, you know, I, I think there's an element that I kind of find that, uh, just, I'm impressed by the people that just year after year stick things out, because I think that's for me where it gets harder. Those last, you know, quarter of a race to, to be tough and really want it, like how bad you want it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's right on. And I, I want to get into kind of like just how things played out at Bandera hundred K for you, but it was very similar to Havelina of like, kind of, you know, the race gets out fast, which they tend to now when you get a mm -hmm. court, you get, you get these events that are, you know, multiple top tier talent deep. Um, someone's usually going to take it out aggressive. And then there's this, there's this pulling factor that kind of brings the entire field behind them, relatively speaking out fast. And you're very patient. Um, I have to be, cause I, <laughs> I don't, I'm not going to run um, in the pain cave for that many hours um, and take it out that fast. So I think that's part of it. I, I just know kind of what my body can do at this point. So I'm not, I, I know I went out fast at Bandera, but anything faster, I was pretty confident that I wouldn't be able to sustain um, a, a fast second lap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You were, you were thinking about that. I was getting a little nervous. Actually. I thought you yeah. maybe got out a little too fast, even though you it wouldn't have maybe looked like that on paper in the early stages, if someone was following the race, because I mean, through those first couple aid stations, like mile five and mile 10, roughly, you know, you were sitting around like seventh or eighth place, which is like, you know, that's scary. I think for a lot of people to think like if, if anyone targeting a top two spot, that's scary. Cause it's like, there's some uncertainty up there. You're, it feels like you don't have control because you're not dictating that positioning the way you would be if you were say in first or second place. But like you said, you have to be honest with yourself about what is sustainable and what's not su sustainable. Cause with these ultra marathons, like if you try to scrape out 10, 16 or 10, 15 seconds a mile in those early stages, you give back two to three minutes per mile by blowing up at the end. And you know, that's not going to get you to the finish line as fast. So yeah, you coming through those aid stations, like you, you went made quick work of the aid stations, but your pacing was, was conservative relative to a lot of the field. Um, I think you went out about as fast as you could have gotten away with without having it 
costume. I agree. <laughs> I, I agree with that statement. Um, and you actually mentioned that to me, probably like two thirds through the, the first loop. And I kind of was mindful of that. Um, and I actually happened to be with Kareth at that point during the loop. And um, I'm fortunate to run um, with her and Lottie and Austin occasionally. Um, and they're both awesome. And I said, oh, Zach told me that we're, we're out a little hot. So um, I was being mindful at the time. But at the same, I, I have to say, once I got to the latter part of the first loop, I just started to be confident that I felt good. Um, you know, and I was just kind of trusting my body. I was kind of like, no, I think my legs can do this today. I felt strong and confident. And sometimes you just kind of know, I don't, again, I, I don't have a watch, so I didn't really <laughs> know what my pace was, but I could just tell that I felt fluid during that, during the first loop. And so I knew that I was going to get to run with you the second loop. So that instilled some confidence in me. And I think I was just really thankful because you were not supposed to be at the race. So I was just really kind of like counting my blessings that you were there and you were going to be able to pace me because I think that that definitely helped. Yeah, it definitely worked out well. I think your your approach to the race is what it needs to be. And I, I, I this is just like a, like a higher order question that I have that I think is really interesting to think about when you look at the splits from like the first half and the second half of most ultra marathons, we're still a sport relative to most endurance events that has a very healthy, positive split. And I think the ultra running community sort of gets into this mindset of it's going to hurt at the end. So I need to kind of like cash in a little bit early on because it's going to suck at the end either way. So if it's going to suck at the end, I may as well have some time banked so that when it sucks, I'm not like trying to catch up while it's the most miserable. Um, I mean, Nick Curry is the best example of kind of showing the alternative to this, which is if you don't burn a bunch of mental and physical matches in the first half of the race, it just doesn't suck as bad. Like from like, it still hurts. You still have to focus. You still have to be really, really like driven and you're going to be pushing through some hard stuff, but you're just way more motivated to be able to do it. So it's like the legs that you could not get to move, no matter how hard you tried, all of a sudden that effort you're giving to get them moving harder actually works. And they keep producing those faster paces, the closer I think you get to an even split. And I think personally, when we, st the next big growth spurt on top of any just new talent into the sport or another tier of talent into the sport is just going to be better pacing from the top of the sport. And what it might end up taking is, you know, some of the big names or the the top, like, you know, five or so people in an event just to kind of like, say like, I'm going to like try to get a little closer to even splitting this so that like there is some energy in a pack heading into the back half of a race where we start seeing some like more even, even splits. Cause like even your race, you know, your first lap was, I think like around a four hour and 47 minute. And then since you ran right around 10 hours, you would have been roughly, I think, I think it ended up being like maybe 28 minutes slower the second time around, which most people would say that's a pretty good, you know, that's a pretty good split. I think closer to 10 minutes would have gotten you the, the finish <laughs> a little quicker. <laughs> the, the last loop, I had some issues with my calves. They were quite 
seizing. I don't know. I've never had that happen before. So that was quite painful, but I agree. I mean, I, I think we all need a lesson from Nick Curry. <laughs> well, the, well, the interesting thing about Bandera too, is it is two loops. So the, the loop does not change. It has this like nature of it where people say that second loop is way harder than people expect. And I think a lot of that is because you get out too fast. That loop didn't change. Right. So like, like it, you got a little too fast. So then the second loop became a monster. Although I'll caveat that being out there pacing the second loop, actually, I did get an appreciation. I think to even split Bandera on a year, like we had this year where there was a heat element to it. An even split is probably going to be a slight positive split just because you start that second loop in those first 15 miles. Actually, it's more like the first 17 miles you get just some, some of the tougher spots on that course. And there's a couple that are like very exposed. And I remember thinking, um, you know, since I was trying to take care of you in the aid stations, I had all of my stuff on a pack so that I didn't have to take care of myself as much in the aid stations. I knew I was going to need to for 50 K. Um, I couldn't just go out there and not drink or eat anything and, and, and keep up with you <laughs> for better or worse. Um, so like I'm carrying his pack with all my stuff in it trying to avoid myself needing aid station stuff as much as possible. And, you know, in the humid Texas weather and then midday when you're coming up some of those peaks that are really exposed, I started feeling like, man, I'm even kind of feeling like overheating a little bit. So I had to think you were, so there is going to be, I think a little bit of a slower second lap, just due to the nature of the temperature, unless you get a really cold year, like was in 2017, you went when it was really cold out, then maybe yeah. you could get away with a, a true even split. 2015 and 2017, when I did the race, were both very cold. So um, this was the first year that it was pretty warm out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's Texas for you, right? Like, yeah. I mean, we saw that with, uh, at the, at the Brazos hundred mile that I was at a few weeks ago where there was this three day stretch and it was like, there was two days that looked pretty rough from a humidity standpoint. And there was one day where it just like all cut cooled off. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately for me and everyone else running that year, we missed it by one day. Sunday was the nice day. Uh, thankfully we didn't get the worst day. The worst day would have been Friday. So uh, but yeah, that's what Texas does, does you does to you. You kind of have to wait almost until at least the week, if not the day of, to really know what you're going to get on race day. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So uh, let's just jump into the race a little bit. You were, I think, seventh or eighth through those first couple of aid stations. Then you sort of settled in, and it was kind of fun watching and crewing because there was a little bit of a kind of a, a like a theme that I was watching in order to see when you were coming through. Cause you were kind of sitting in roughly the same spot for, you know, the better part of the second half of that first loop where um, like Amanda Basham would come through and then you would usually come through just like maybe a few minutes after her. There's a couple um, I think it was a uh, Kareth and maybe a couple other women were like just behind you kind of consistently mm -hmm. behind you in a, in the spot. And then there was some shuffling around up ahead of that, but in terms of distance from the different positions, that's pretty consistent. I believe you came through 50 K in fifth place. So you did move up a little bit in the back half of that first lap. Uh, we may have passed someone through the aid station there. I'm not hundred percent sure. Uh, but what were you thinking going on to that second loop? I mean, I was just trying to make up as much time as I could. Right. I knew I just wanted to keep moving up on the field. I saw a couple of the ladies going back out for the second loop. And so I, you know, I, I saw that they were pretty close. So I figured, Hey, I might as well go for it. Right. I just, I was feeling strong at that point. So I, um, just wanted to keep moving forward. Yeah. 
you know, it's, it's always interesting being the, like the sort of the outsider looking in or the support person, because one, I can't really know for sure how, would, how you're feeling exactly. Like I'm trying to get that Intel to like, maybe help figure out what you need. Um, and, and try to suss out where everyone else is in the field. And it was interesting to me, like kind of, as you were getting to the part, the midway point where I was going to pick you up to pace, I was watching the women's field and thinking, okay, you know, Courtney's looking rock solid. Chances are she nails it. Um, then the next question is like, well, how much progress can you make if any on, you know, what would have been fourth place, third place and second place. And I was thinking like, I was pretty confident if you were having a day similar to Javelina, you were going to get up to third place, uh, without too much trouble. It's assuming no one behind you started surging as well. There's always that threat in these races too, where it's like, yeah, you could be moving well, but if someone behind you that was only maybe five minutes back is moving even better than you can be making progress, but then also give back. So I was thinking, you know, third place, I feel pretty confident if things don't go wrong, second place might be tough. Uh, it was just an unknown to me. And we ended up moving into third place pretty soon in that second loop. And then we went through the, what's the mile, roughly mile 10 aid station on the second loop. So that would have been like 41 miles into the race. And I asked someone at the aid station after you left, I hung back a little bit to try to figure out kind of where the field was. And I asked, is like, do you know what, where, where we're at? And, uh, one of the one of the 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 volunteers at the aid station had been tracking and he's just said third place 11 minutes out of second i had no clue we were that close to second place at that time i was assuming we were probably 20 30 minutes behind second at 50k so would have been 10 miles earlier what did you think when i told you that i was hesitant if i should tell you that at first but i thought okay you probably want to know this what did you think though when you realized okay i'm 10 minutes or 11 minutes away from a golden ticket spot, if I can hold it. And also knowing that it wasn't just you were 11 minutes back, you've been closing pretty aggressively if you made up that much time. So you knew, you knew you were catching up quick. Yeah. I, you know, I think I just figured at that point, I just was like, I just got to keep moving one step, one foot in front of the other. Right. I, I don't think I was giving it a lot of mental energy. I just wanted to keep moving up. Um, and so I knew there were a lot of really talented ladies behind me. So I knew I needed to run smart. And, you know, you always know what the golden ticket race, somebody is going to have a really good day. So just, I figured I, you know, I needed to put all my energy and just continuing to, to move forward. Um, but yeah, it was definitely nerve wracking because when we did pass, um, the second place, then we had a long time to, that we had to hold mm -hmm. onto that spot. Um, so it really went from being the chase, the chaser to being, being chased, being yeah. chased right. And mm -hmm. that's the thing I think with this race is there were, it turns out there were a lot of ladies that were very close then in that next group, right? Mm -hmm. So they were all push, pushing each other. So, you know, if we wouldn't have been able to maintain a steady pace, we could have easily gotten caught. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was interesting. Right. I, I definitely didn't think you were going to be in second place by what ended up being like somewhere between mile, like maybe 43 to 45. Mm -hmm. 
when you moved into it, it was clear why, because it was like, you know, there was, you know, just, uh, you know, rough patches that you could kind of tell were, were occurring. And then it's just about kind of like staying tough. But yeah, was there a mind shift when you moved in the second of like, like, okay, now I'm no longer chasing. Now I'm just like, I got to like, worry about what's behind me. Oh, I always get anxiety then <laughs> because you just feel like, oh my gosh, I'm in second. Um, I have the ability to do this, but I just was with you and we just figured, okay, let's keep trucking. I think um, with 11 miles to go, you gave me my music. I think we got it out of my pack or, and that helped just to have the music playing, just take my mind off of things. So that's always nice to wait till the end of the race to get the time to listen to music. And I think that helped push. Um, and then, you know, at that point we were just running steady. I don't think we were, um, I, I can't say like the last five miles that we put on a huge push. Right. I mean, I've had better days closing. My calves were really tight. So I just kind of was trying to keep slow and steady to make it to the finish. Um, we figured we had a, you know, a decent amount of time. Um, so yeah, I just happy to cross the finish line. Um, we were able to see Joe Persadis mm. right before we closed the finish. And, um, for those of you that don't know before Chris McWaters, um, is now the owner of the Tejas trails um, Joe and his wife, Joyce, um, were the former owners. And that's really how I started, um, doing trail running. So it was really special to see him with a hundred meters to go. Uh, he was yeah. going out for a second loop. That was just a, a very like kind of fate-esque type of situation. Yeah. The, the, one of the people who kind of got you into trail running, you see as you're finishing and he's heading out for, for his second loop. So uh, yeah, that couldn't have been lined up more, <laughs> more yeah. perfectly. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was interesting. Cause like, it was a kind of, a uh, an interesting ending in that we were pretty confident you had had like, you know, over 10 minute lead going into that last four miles from the final aid station to the finish, which basically meant like, you'd probably have to really start hurting in order for it to, um, end up being a situation where you got caught, but I mean, one mile, you walk one mile when everyone else is running 10 minutes can get closed very quickly on a course like that. And I wasn't too worried because when you're on, you're, you're just very consistent. You don't have like these, like your lows are still quite high, relatively speaking. So like I was thinking, even if you struggle, you're not going to struggle to the degree where you're hemorrhaging five, six, seven, eight minutes per mile or anything like that. And you're going to get caught, but the end of that course has this nice little climb around two miles out where I could tell you were really hurting at that point. You wanted to be done badly. Um, what was it like going up that climb at mile 60? Oh, it was hard. My calves were just really beat up at that point. So, um, I was just happy to, I knew the climb was coming, right? So got over the climb and then we just had about two miles to go. And those two miles, um, gosh, it felt good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So you finish, you get the golden ticket. Um, didn't have to take your headlamp out, which is always a plus. And if you can do one of these races and not have to use a headlamp, that's usually a, a good day in most cases. Um, what are you thinking about now? I mean, it's an interesting spot because getting a golden ticket at Bandera 
gives you a pretty long ramp up to Western States. Western States is the end of June. You got half a year, essentially. That's a long time to go without racing when you're peaking for a race like, like Western States. So there's this mindset of like, okay, I've got a long time to really prep. I know I'm in, so I can prep specifically for this without worrying about it backfiring on me and having to do something different because I don't get in. What do you think? What are you thinking about between now and then in terms of, uh, I think we probably know what you'll do training wise for the most part, but what about races? You think anything on your mind right now or still? I, no, I think I'm just so tired from yesterday <laughs> that I hadn't given it much thought, but I'm glad you have. Yeah. Lucky to have you. I only ran 50K yesterday. So <laughs> no idea. But um, yeah, I'm sure we can find something. But um, no, it will be good to jump in a couple of races. Um, I always kind of like to do some local stuff. So probably do some of that. And then I just want to put in a really good training block to get ready for Western. Um, don't know how many more I'll have left. Right. I, yeah, I'm getting older. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, uh, well, let, let's maybe end on that. Let's talk about your history with Western States 100. It's like, I, I was putting up a social media post this morning and I was just trying to like, I had to remind myself how many times you've engaged with that event as a participant <laughs> and as i was running through it as okay you've been top three twice or no i'm sorry top three the top 10 yeah. three times so that's three then in 2018 you finished i think like somewhere in like 18th or something like that so you're outside the top 10 but you finished so that was a fourth then you you dnf'd in 2019 right? No. It was, or no, 2021. 2021. Mm -hmm. And then I did not start after I got a golden ticket in 2014, because I had a cap abscess. Yeah. So mm -hmm. really the whole spectrum for yeah. Western states. So yeah, you're heading in for your potentially eighth start, ninth opportunity, I guess you could maybe say yeah. if you count the calf, because what were the calf abscess? Was that the week of the race that that happened? I can't remember. No. It happened during the Western States training camp. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Did you leave early? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you had to leave early for it. So mm -hmm. like, and it was, it was actually fairly it's serious. Pretty serious. Yeah. So good thing you did that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. All trainers take care of yourselves out there. You don't want to yeah. lose a leg over this sport. It's a cap abscess are, are not something to joke around about. Yeah. Yeah. So either way, I mean, just like, I guess, like, you know, when you think about just the way Western States kind of plays out, it sort of does put you in a situation where if you're not already in from prior years, which you have been, you know, three times you got top 10, meaning you're automatically back in. So you kind of have that, that guaranteed spot if you want it. And then you got in once on a sponsor spot, I think as well from ultra footwear. Um, but then you've raced in a couple of times too. You raced in this year, you raced in, in 2017 through the black Canyon, hundred uh, K when you won. Um, you and Claire Gallagher had a nice little, uh, back and forth that day, which was yeah. the first time I paced and crewed for you. So it was like, you know, that was my first experience of like the consistency that is Nicole on a, on a race course. Uh, and yeah, so you've raced in a couple of times, um, you requalified three times, you know, on a sponsor spot, you've gotten in every which way <laughs> other than the lottery, I guess. Yeah. I think this is my fourth golden ticket because I, Got one in 2014 at Rocky Raccoon. That was, I think, the last year. It was a, a golden ticket. And then I I got the cap abscess, so couldn't run. Requalified at Bandera. Got second in 2015 to Eliza LaPierre. 2017, won Black Canyon. And then now second at Bandera. Bandera. 
Mm-hmm. So a lot of golden ticket races, yeah. but this is the first golden ticket that I've actually gotten to take home. So I'm pretty excited. We got to put it in the back. Yeah, we should have hung that up. Yeah. I, I maybe should have waited a week to do this podcast so that you could like relax your mind enough to think about yeah. maybe what race you want to do next and hang up your golden ticket on the back of the wall. But I mean, it was, uh, I think this one is going to be a fun one to get out and share with, uh, with the folks that follow the race or that are interested in kind of hearing like your, your perspective on things. Cause I know like, I mean, you're busy. You you don't necessarily like hang out on social media a ton to the point where people are probably aware of everything that you do from a day-to-day standpoint and just your mindset coming in from, you know, someone who has a full career outside of the sport and everything else that kind of comes into making you who you are. So it's always fun to have you on the show and kind of talk a little bit about that. Well, it was an honor. Thank you. Um, before I let you go, where can people find you on the elusive social medias? <laughs> well, it's not the best, but it's MK Bitter on Instagram. Awesome. Thanks a bunch for taking some time. Thank you. I think it's nap time now, right? Thanks for pacing me. Yes. I'm going to go nap with the dogs. I think they're, they're ready for a nap too. Awesome. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athlete's guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program. So you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zackbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 